Welcome to this week's episode of Being Bookish. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, introvert, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and ex-coffee addict. As you may be able to tell, this differs from my usual episodes, so let's get straight to the content you're here for. Join me and my guest, author Kate Abelin, as we talk about her brand new book, Ever After, different types of love that are encompassed in the story, and Italy, an extra character and a place that she loves and takes a lot of beautiful pictures of. If you want to know what I mean, check out her Instagram after you've listened to this episode. I'm here with Kate Abelin to talk about her latest novel, Ever After, which is wonderful. I finished it a couple of weeks ago and spent quite a few hours crying and contemplating my choices in life, though not for bad reasons, I promise. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today, Kate. Well, thank you very much for having me on your podcast, Ray. It's uh, a real pleasure to meet you. Yeah, you too. And I, as I said, I really enjoyed your book. It opened my eyes to so many things, especially I really need to go to Florence because it sounds incredible. Every Everything you described was beautiful. So for those who haven't read the book yet and really need to pick it up, what is Ever After about without spoilers? Okay, so Ever After is about um, two strangers in their mid-30s who meet in Florence and fall passionately in love, have a sort of amazing holiday romance. And really it's about whether that romance can sustain um, once they return to rainy London. Now, the characters are called Tess and Gus, uh, and I have actually written about them before in a book called Miss You, um, which was about kind of, in a way, the preceding 16 years up to the beginning of Ever After, where Tess and Gus had first glimpsed each other um, when they were 18 years old in Florence for the first time. Um, And in that way that you kind of do sometimes when you're on holiday in the city, they, their paths had crossed a couple of times during the day. So it was almost like they recognised each other on the, the second occasion. And uh, it, the, their first, you know, when they were 18, they, uh, it was 1997. So Tess actually asked Gus, because she kind of recognised him, to take a picture of her and her friend, because it was pre-selfie in those days. Um, so he took a picture of her and her best friend, Doll, on the Ponte Vecchio. So at the beginning of Ever After, and you don't actually have to have read Miss You in order, I think. It's a, Ever After is a totally standalone novel. Yeah. Um, but at the beginning of Ever After, they've literally just met again in the, first, in the place where they first met when they were 18. Um, and as they talk to one another, they realise that their lives have kind of crossed paths throughout those 16 years. Uh, and so it seems when they're falling in love that almost it was meant to be or they were meant to find each other. It feels a bit like a, a fairy story. Um, and so the book is essentially 
if if Miss You was the fairy story, with uh, Ever After is the can these two people who are in a sense so different because their lives have brushed past each other, never meeting all this time. Um, could they actually live happily ever after? It is. That's. I mean, that's it, isn't it? It's. It's almost serendipity or fate. Yes. I mean, I much prefer the idea of serendipity. Um, I love the idea that our lives are just a whole series of chances, a sort of random occurrences, and that somehow it's it's luck rather than any kind of predetermined um, destiny that brings us together. Um, and I love the idea of all these sort of alternate lives that we could have led if we'd been in a place just a minute later or you know that to me is is that's really what I was trying to write about in Miss You um and um I suppose in Ever After I'm writing about whether you can still keep missing each other even if you're together but in a kind of more kind of metaphorical way I suppose um so you know, can your lives still be on such different tracks that even though you're in love, you can't actually sustain a relationship? Or can you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's the thing. I mean, they go through a lot when they're together. What made you come back to, was it always a plan to come back to Tess and Gus after Miss You? It was not a plan at all. Um, my, I, I didn't, when I first conceived the idea of Miss You, um, I didn't actually think that they would ever meet. I, in a way, it was a kind of challenge to myself. Can you write a love story about two people who never meet? Um, but then I decided, no, that's not going to be satisfying. They, they've got to meet in the end. Um, and so, but when I wrote that final scene, I absolutely felt that that was the end. But uh, what happened was that Missy was a sort of surprise success um, and it sold in 30 languages all over the world. And um, I began to get messages from people from all different countries, you know, Brazil and Chile and you know, Czechia and, I mean, literally, and and a lot from Sweden, you know, oh, I wish I knew what had happened to Tess and Gas, you know, will they stay together? Oh, I really would love to know what happened to Tess and Gas. And I didn't think, oh, well, I've got to write a sequel then. But what I did think was, well, actually, I wonder if they could, you know, whether that love story would continue. And if it did, what would it actually look like? And so that started to interests me Uh, and so you know it's been quite a few years since I finished Miss You Um, but I I thought no I I think I I would like to write that in a way a kind of quite unusual love story where the protagonists start off together Um, because traditionally you know they don't start off together yeah (laughs) traditionally (laughs) it's all about them finding each other and how the love story develops whereas this one you have I mean the first the obviously the first chapter is kind of like the end of the book but not 
because it's how did we get to this point? And when I first read the first, I, I was thinking as I read it, okay, I've missed something. And then I started the next chapter and it's like, oh, now, now I get where we are because it starts in 2020 and then goes back to 2013. And yes. so the book spans seven years. Yes, yes, which it is a, does. a lot of time in anybody's life. Yes, yes. And so much more so in strange ways in Tess's. Yes, yes. Tess is, is a person with a very complicated background and a lot of responsibility on her shoulders. Um, and, um, yeah, she's... Um, Shall I talk a little bit about Tess? Yes, please do. Yeah. I, I think Tess is an incredibly strong character, but she's also, there are certain elements of her, you sit there and you can you can see yourself in them. And sometimes that's a little bit disturbing. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad that that you could identify in a sense with... with um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, how she that is. longing to seek something different, to find change. I think a lot of people long for that. At, at every stage of their lives. Yes, I think, well, Tess is, um, she, when she was 18, um, she was all, she, you know, she's a clever girl and she comes from a very working class background, but she was going to about to be the first in her family ever to go to university. And when we first met her in Florence, she was um, getting her A-levels results and she'd done really well and so she was thinking her life was about to change and she was, you know, wanting to be really somebody who loved literature and could talk about it with people at university and she was really looking forward to that. And then when she got back from holiday, she found that her mother um, had a terminal illness and she basically her choice was taken from her because she also had a little sister who needed looking after and she knew that she had to look after her little sister because her father's quite feckless really uh, and that's really what her mother wants want, would have wanted her to do so even though her mother dies in in miss you right at the beginning actually she's always with her She's always somehow part of Tess's journey through life um, because she was very close to her. Um, and um, Tess is a kind of relentlessly optimistic person, really, and always wants to get the most out of life, but somehow is held back by not having the opportunities that she really kind of deserves to have in a way. But I think this is what makes her very attractive to Gus, who has kind of had a lot of opportunities. He's a middle-class uh, boy. He's been to a private school. Um, he's had so-called advantages. and um, But his, you know, he's, he's never had to worry about money or anything like that. But um, he, he's, his family don't really get on and they're kind of Polacks with grief themselves. Um, and so meeting Tess, it's um, she, he suddenly sort of feels that his world is full of possibility. Um, and that's really the attraction between them. They make a lot of plans together 
and obviously as is the way with life certain things get in the way the scenes at Gus's mother's funeral really were horrifying in so many ways his mother was I mean obviously you don't really get to know very much about her or you I think you meet her once in the book yeah and then you encounter all these people who knew his mother at her funeral and discover that, oh, I thought her son had died. Yes. And that that really stunned me. Yes. Well, Gus's older brother um, was killed in a skiing accident and that's why there was grief in the family. And the, they, were un, really unable to process it as a family. And so the parents split up and the mother just adored the older son, who Gus has al- always had a bit of an inferiority complex about because he was, you know, he was captain of the cricket team. He was head boy. He did everything. And Gus sort of was all, always felt in his shadow. Um, and uh, so Gus has got quite a sort of problematic relationship with his mother and when she dies um in in ever after um that gives him enormous problems because i i think him it's always very difficult when a parent dies but um i think it can be even more difficult if your relationship with them is poor um because there's a hot you know there are lots of layers of other emotions and that's um Certainly Gus suffers from a lot of those. Um, Regret and yeah. guilt being two of them. Mm, yes. And and also, of course, there's the um the elephant in the room in Gus's ex-wife, Charlotte, who was his brother's girlfriend, I think. Yes. Again, he sort of felt in a way he had to marry her. Um, or maybe, you know, the attraction between them was kind of sort of greater because she was this incredibly beautiful fiance of his his older brother um but um yes charlotte's quite a you know charlotte's a very strong character i mean i hope that she's not just a you know I think she's quite a difficult character, but I also hope that she's got layers of vulnerability too. That She feels yeah. sometimes as though she's rather insecure in herself. Yes. So she obviously layers that with her glamour and her intelligence and the power she has over Gus because of their two children. But at the same time, she feels insecure and dissatisfied in her life with her second husband and that comes across whenever she talks about Tess and Gus because I don't know it it seems almost as though she's frustrated that he's managed to move on and she doesn't like that because she's always had a position a place in his life and all of a sudden it's been usurped yes I think that's absolutely true yes yes um it's so very rewarding when a reader has read it so closely that you, you suddenly realise that, yes, things have come across that you intended. Yeah, that's, yeah, I think you've summed it up, really. She was a very interesting character because whatever happens, she's the mother of his children. She's always going to have a place in his life. But when things go, things don't quite go as they should be between 
Gus and Tess, she's there to not so much pick up the slack, but to kind of shoehorn her way in and make things worse. As though it's like, oh, now I've got my chance to make him realise that he needs me far more than he needs anybody else. Yes, I think that's part of it. And also, of course, because she's sort of, you know, a legendary beauty and she's very successful and clever, Tess is always going to feel somehow that she's not a good enough alternative. So I think that that's one of the big dramatic tensions in in the book that, uh, you know, I think it, it is very difficult to be, you know, the, the next person after a, a divorce, you know, yeah. um, which is what's happened. And Tess feels never, she's already quite insecure. Um, and um, she feels it very strongly whenever Charlotte is even mentioned, really. Especially because the, th- I, the thing I found interesting was her relationship, Tess's relationship with his children, with Flora and Bella, because both of them initially are a kind of, of step back because they're very young when Tess and Gus originally get involved and as they get as obviously as the story goes on the children as children do get older and all of a sudden you've got these two very um teenagers I mean very they're just teenagers and they seem to be able to stick the knife in as as accurately and cleanly as their mother does though whether they intend to or not is another matter. Yes, I think uh, Flora, the older one, certainly is like, you know, very like her mother. And, of course, she'll have learned all those, you know, ways of manipulating and sticking the knife in from her mother. Um, uh, But I also think that she, in a sense, has a target who's very vulnerable and doesn't, you know, test because she's quite always quite insecure, really, because she's not the same background. She doesn't sort of feel in a way that she's good enough. She's always going to be quite um, a vulnerable target for that kind of uh, behaviour. The younger one, I think, Bella, is um, easier I love the way Bella's character developed with the I'm vegan, um, the pla- the con- her concern for the planet and the environment and the way that she talks about, oh, no, you shouldn't be coming here because of the environment. You shouldn't fly. You shouldn't do this. But how am I going to see you if I don't? <laughs> yes, yes. But I think that some young people really are like that now. Yeah. You know, I think that that's uh, – and, in you know, uh, yeah, I mean – I I think that in some ways, some young people are quite sort of political about yeah, things absolutely. that we might have been, not have been political about, like flying. And, yeah. But the, these little snippets and these little characteristics that get thrown in almost to certain elements, to they really round the characters out. They make them so real because you are giving them, you are giving them features that we are seeing far more now, but also you're making them concerned about things that quite often when you read a book, you're not thinking about because obviously a book is escapism and they're just adding them in to give them this roundness, which I which I thought was brilliant. And 
I think another thing, obviously, with relationships, because that is what this book is. It's the whole, a study in so many different relationships. Tess's relationships with her family are so complicated. Her dad is, oh, (laughs) I can't even describe. Her dad is so frustrating because he seems so self-centered. Obviously, moving on in the story a lot, we've had Tess has moved to... Italy. She's living in Ortigia, which sounds beautiful, by the way. I oh, it love, is. Yeah. I love the descri- all of the descriptions of the different locations. It sounds so gorgeous. But she's moved there and she comes back because there's a problem with her younger sister, Hope, in that she's just left her very self-centered boyfriend who felt incredibly controlling all the way through, Martin. Yes. And she's now living back at home with her dad, who definitely doesn't want her there yes so once again Tess is in the position she was um when Hope was a little girl I mean Hope's now grown up but she's um still a quite a vulnerable person herself um because she's got an autism um diagnosis and um she um the father is I mean he's one of these people who can be very charismatic and engaging and charming when he wants to be, or he can be an absolute nightmare. Um, And he is, as you say, very self-centred. And Tess really kind of fears for her sister um, in that environment. Um, And so, yes, she has to sort of step in again, Um, even though she thought that Hope had become independent, you know, she's grown up. so but Tess is such a kind of big sister um and it's been so sort of programmed into her that that's her role um that she you know her natural instinct is to protect her and Um, and yet again she's putting her life on hold because obviously she's moved to Ortigia which sounds again I, I can't believe how beautiful it sounds just like a moving into history almost yes it is well that's one of the things that i love about italy so much um and coincidentally tess loves about italy (laughs) um which is that somehow the past is always part of the present um you know i mean it is to an extent everywhere but in italy it just feels like you're walking on the same paving stones as the romans or in this case the christian martyrs um one of whom is very important in the town of syracuse yeah. um and ortigia is the center of it's the old town of syracuse in sicily um so uh yes um yeah I don't know where we started with that line of we thought. I just about, got carried away by Italy. We were talking about how um, Tess had moved, but had moved to Italy. She'd started up a life with, which they'd always planned to do with Gus, and things were going really well. Then she comes back and she puts her life on hold yet again. But at the same time, she she, she almost shuts herself off because she's not communicating with Gus that. I'm not going to be coming back. Things aren't working out as they were, as they should be. Um, we're going to have to, our dreams, are, they, they, they're over. And she doesn't bother telling him until he turns up on her doorstep and she's found a job. Yes. 
Yes, well, I think she's ever the optimist and thinks that she'll work it all out and then she'll tell him. Um, and he's had quite a lot of disappointments and problems, so she's always slightly nervous about confronting him with reality. Um, and um, basically, she's in, she's conflicted herself. Um, one of the things I wanted to write about was how um, love, you know, how many different sorts of love there are. I mean, love is just such a, you know, a tiny word, and yet her love for her sister Hope is, you know, visceral and it's like it's in her DNA, the wish to protect her and to keep her safe and to make her life happy. And her love for Gus is something completely different. It's passionate, it makes her feel like she's the person that she should be. Um, And yet those two things sometimes can't really be reconciled because, you know, it's... Hope is demanding, and it's a lot to look after her. And um, and Tess is probably always going to choose the sort of the dutiful thing rather than what might be best for her, um, or you know the the sort of what she would consider the sort of indulgent thing. Yeah. So, so family. Uh, so. It's not, that's the thing. I mean, it's not so much that family comes first because I don't, I I get the feeling that if it were her father in that situation, it wouldn't be the same because her relationship with him is so damaged. But her relationship with hope, it's almost, it's almost maternal. It is, it is because she has stepped in. And, and become a mother um, to hope, really. And I think, you know, people have said to me that they think that Tess is overprotective of hope. But actually, I'm, you know, if, if you think of the sort of love that she has, which, as you say, is maternal, I don't think it is. It's, it's just what she, what she feels compelled to do. In a way, there's no... There's, she couldn't be any different. No. Oh. And... That's that's the thing. It's very very interesting when you realise that she has two brothers. That you don't you don't even really think about them very much for most of the book, and then obviously they go to Australia for a wedding, and you discover that she has two brothers who've both been able to get on with their lives completely. One lived in Australia, one lives in America, and they've got these perfect lifestyles. They've got freedom they have the responsibility that they've chosen to have. Whereas it's Tess was kind of, even with all the things that she's had happen that haven't been great, she still has the responsibility for making sure that everything goes smoothly or rather she's given herself that responsibility. And obviously there's the, the elephant in the room when it comes to Tess in the fact that she's also going for regular checkups at the hospital because she's going in she's in remission from cancer yes yes because both in her family in her mother's family the mother had the BRCA gene mutation and so does Tess and um so uh Tess yeah she's already had um major cancer surgery and treatment um, 
by the time she's in her early 30s at the beginning of Ever After. And, of course, there's a a protocol that's followed after that to be checked up. So, yeah, so she's had all sorts of of, um, hurdles, really, and struggles that she's had to get through. Um, I mean, in a sense, I think it's also quite a sort of... Just going back to her relationship with hope it's it's a sort of reciprocal thing in a kind of odd way that Tess is always there for hope but in a way hope in her curious kind of unemotional way is always there for Tess too and she's her sort of stability and her rock just so there is a great love both ways between them although hope is not somebody who can easily express emotion um so um yeah I wouldn't want it to sort of just be a sort of one-way thing. Yeah, Tess is um, almost hope is Tess's reason for being. Yeah, she is. Without her, she wouldn't have the same strength. And even Gus's love and her love for Gus doesn't seem to give her that same purpose. Yeah, I I think that's probably true. And hope... um, is able has a most beautiful singing voice and so she's in a curious kind of way able to communicate with people um even though she's she's um you know finds it difficult to express her emotions just in in a normal kind of relationships but in song she's got this absolute gift um and i think that you know tess is is very keen that she should be able to have the freedom to express herself in that way. Um, Yeah, and um, I think, you know, I think family, you know, I mean, the old cliche, blood is thicker than water, but it's, you know, it is, if if you love your family, it is generally what you'll kind of choose to be your priority, I think. Yeah, I think it becomes difficult when I... I well, reading the book, her brother with his partner and their children, obviously they were, the daughter, the, her, their first child was born before, um, I'm guessing, before the end of Miss You. Yes. And um, so his priorities changed because he'd extended his family, something that, I mean, Tess's priorities may well have changed if she'd had children. Well, that's true, but also both the brothers, in a sense, they've had the freedom to get away, but it's also really because they've had a most horrible, violent father who they've needed to get away from. One of the brothers is gay and went to New York and and, um, so is married to a very nice American. Um, But the father, you know, is the sort of person who just absolutely wouldn't have tolerated that. So he had to get away. And the other brother um, got his girlfriend pregnant, basically, and was disapproved of by both the father and the mother, actually, in the past. So there's mention of the um, Tess mentions something along the lines of how her mother had disapproved of the girlfriend far more than the situation itself. Yes, yes. so, because they're, you know, a fairly traditional family, fairly traditional Catholic family, um, that's really Tess's background. Um, and, yes, and so, basically, Brendan, the other brother, has 
has got found his sort of getaway by going to by emigrating um and he made a very very good life for himself yes yes and i think in in that kind of family the you know it would be assumed that the girl would be the one who you know it's nearly always assumed that the girl the daughter is the carer you know if there is one yes (laughs) (laughs) and normally the single girl is the carer Yes, exactly. Yeah. Speaking, speaking as the single girl who was um, her grandmother's carer, yes, I can honestly say that is the case. <laughs> but it's, it's the thing I loved. It, there, there were so many facets to all of the relationships. There were, it wasn't one, not one of them was one dimensional because you've got Gus's relationship with Charlotte and in turn his relationship with his daughters, but also his daughter's relationships with both their parents and with Tess. Then you've got Hope's relationship with Tess, her relationship with Gus, which was very interesting because Tess seemed, Hope seemed to be happy for her sister, but at the same time reticent, as though she sensed that Tess was a bit, unsure or anxious in herself i think i think hope just basically finds other people quite difficult to deal with um uh and so gus is one of the few and i think also she's been quite traumatized by having such a capricious and sometimes violent father and so sort of trusting anyone especially men is difficult for her um but um she thinks that gus is i think she thinks he she says he's a smiley man um and um so they sort of get along but she's never really hope is not really able to establish relationships with anyone. I mean, not even Tess, actually. Um, Her her relationship with Martin was, there were moments where after they'd broken up, some of the things she said made me laugh because she was so matter, as you said, she's very matter of fact. Mm. I'm not with him anymore. I don't want to go back to him. I don't want to sing anymore. He didn't, he he said I was fat. She's yes. so blunt and in her delivery of everything, but that's how some people are. Yes, yeah, yes, I think so. Um, and yes, often hope is the only person who's telling the truth because we cover things up with so many kind of social niceties, I think, um, in life. Um, and so hope may sound a bit abrupt at times, but actually she's she's always telling the truth, you know. Um, and she she does manage to adapt very well to change when it suits her. For yes. example, when they're in Australia for the wedding and it's proposed that she stays, she's finally singing again after not singing for a considerable period of time, and she's like I'm gonna stay that's my decision made I don't I'm I'm not bothered about the consequences or anybody else's feelings this is what I'm doing and she's doing in many ways what I partly I sort of wished Tess would do yes Tess was so concerned with everyone else that she wasn't thinking about herself at times when she probably should have done yes no I think that that's absolutely right 
Um, but I, but I think there are people who are sort of natural carers, or that position is put on them, and it's just not in their nature to be able to be something different or to be selfish about things or that they wouldn't actually be happy if they you know were just intent on fulfilling themselves whatever that meant um uh i mean i i think that um sometimes people say you know you have to look after yourself but actually what does that even mean if you're caring for somebody that you love you know occasionally you having more than an hour's sleep <laughs> <laughs> well maybe yes <laughs> i think that's that's the best one it's the occasionally having more than an hour's sleep and when you go to the supermarket to do the grocery shopping get yourself a cup of coffee and have a sit down <laughs> 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 Sounds weird, but I can honestly say that those are those are the moments that the the few minutes you get to yourself when you're not giving somebody medication or making them breakfast or carrying them down the stairs, you think, I think I want a coffee and five minutes, just yes. five minutes when no one's calling to me, when ask, no one's asking me for something. So, yes. but self care is hard when you're caring for someone. Really, I think hard. that's right. Yeah, um, and 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 that's one of the things that, um, without going too much into all the subplots, that's one of the things that I wanted to write about actually in in, in the book. That um, you know, all these uh, quite a lot of the people that Tess encounters have their own problems, mm. um, uh, and there isn't nobody is really caring for her a lot of the time. Um, and the sort of, you know, the systems that there are in the world to look after people who care are few and far between. And I don't think that that's um, recognised enough in our society. They're getting better. They are getting yes. much better than they were. But that that is something that is very clearly highlighted. And though Gus gets frustrated with Tess because of the whole hope situation, all his frustration is doing is make is pushing her away. Yes. And that is another facet of their relationship. He's yes. alienating her when he thinks he's helping her. Exactly. Yes, he's got her own best interests at heart, but he doesn't Yeah. He has to both of them have to learn an awful lot. And they, uh, the thing is, that's that's one of the things that's great about this is that they do learn and they do develop. And because of all the things that they go through, and they go through a lot. I mean, you really did torture them just, just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but then life tortures everybody, so it's it's kind of fair. And all of these things that they went through, they do become so much stronger because of them even though they kind of push each other away at many points. Yeah, I think in the end they make each other better people. And I think that is really, some you know, as much as you can hope for, really. I mean, you know, maybe that's what love is, to make the other person the best version of themselves that they can be. Absolutely. 
without giving away the ending, because we really don't want to, would you ever revisit these characters, any of them, Hope, Tess, Gus, Doll, who we haven't actually spoken about very much, but she, I mean, the relationship that Tess and Dolly have is, has is very complicated. Uh, yes, well, she's a sort of best friend, um, and with your best friend, you know, who's known her since she was, you know, tiny. And I think sometimes, you know, your best friend is your worst enemy as well. Yeah. She um, takes her for granted a lot, I think. Yes, but again, actually, Doll probably is the one person who does look after Tess. You know, she has, you know, she supports her in quite a lot of ways. Though so their um, relationship does take a an unexpected turn. It certainly does, yes. Um, but we don't need to give that away because that's, no. that's, that's a very interesting plot that I think offers a great deal of character development for Dolly and and her relationship with Tess. But would you ever revisit them again? I don't think that I would now. It's very, very difficult to actually write about the same characters again I mean Ever After was the most difficult book for me to write um because it has it does stand alone and it has to stand alone yeah and um and yet you're limited by it you know if you have had readers who've read Missy or whatever you can't actually alter history I mean you have got these characters with a history um and so uh I feel that I've said what I want to say about those characters. And much as I like Doll, um, uh, and I like Hope too, but I think it would be, and I I, I think Hope's a, an interesting character, but I think it would be very, very difficult to write a book about, another book about them. So I don't. I I think that that is it. I mean, I. However, I mean, I said that at the end of. Never say never. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's very unlikely. That that's that's it though, isn't it? You've you've given them an ending, and it's kind of open ended, to a degree. And I'm not. Uh, it's very very difficult to not say. Why? But it is very, it's open-ended to a degree. And it ends during the pandemic. Yes. Which is... Yes. Well, yeah. Um, which changed lots of things for lots of people. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, and yes, and has particular effects for them because uh, Gus is a doctor. Yes. Um, that's his job. Uh Yeah. yeah. Yes, well, um, I'm just trying to think. I suppose I had, yes, I'm, I finished writing Ever After in the pandemic. Oh, wow. So um, so it wasn't like it was, uh, and it, it takes place, you know, from 2013 onwards. And so uh, it, in a way, that gave it another kind of twist, Um you know, I, I yeah. had thought of the book before and had been writing the book before, but then some of it was written in the pandemic, so it, it gave it, it you know, it made it a different book from what it would have been, I suppose. And somehow it fitted quite well with all those kind of restrictions. 
Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I definitely say that they they work very well into the book because obviously Gus's career path is something that is touched, not even touched upon, but mentioned multiple times throughout the book. And he is developing not only his personal life, but his career throughout the book because he discovers almost a fresh, a new love for what he's doing. Yes. Yes, he's finally decides it's what he wants to do. Because he's become um, somewhat disenchanted, hasn't he? Yes. Well, he he sort of never wanted, when he was younger, to be a doctor. And then he finds out, when he's sort of almost given it up, that it is actually the thing he wanted to do. Um, uh, you know, he thought he wanted to go and paint and live in Italy. But actually, when that happened, he actually... Yeah, you know, things happen that made him think. No, actually, I want to be a doctor. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I, again, he learn he he becomes a much more grown up person. I think, essentially. which makes him far stronger in his relationships with everybody in his life, from his friends to his ex wife, his children to Tess, and to everyone, to his patients too. Yes, absolutely. He has much more of an understanding and also to the colleagues and staff around him. Um, and he, um, he, you know, he recognises the sort of value of kindness, actually. Um, and one of, the, one of the things that Tess's mother always said to her was, um, you know, when Tess was kind of, you know, a teenager falling in love with a different member of Take That every week, her yeah, mother said... <laughs> she said that it's it's not um it's not how somebody looks, it's what you what you want, Tess, is a kind man. And Gus is also very good looking and very attractive, but he essentially has a kind nature and he becomes a kind man. So uh, that was important to me. That's really, because he, you know, he goes through the mill, Gus. Yeah, he has um, so much baggage to begin with, especially yeah. where his mother, his relationship with his mum, his dad, who makes a surprise appearance, and his older brother are concerned. He has such baggage, such pro- so many problems with the relationships that they had that some of that carries through to the way he acts with colleagues, friends, and his loved ones. Yes. Because he's so bitter and angry with Charlotte. That comes across when he's talking with Tess about, oh, we're keeping this house because Charlotte thinks it's better for the children. But she, I mean, she's moved on and she's living abroad, but he's still, it's almost like he feels like he's stuck and finally he stands up for himself and does things for himself but also does these things to make things better for everyone else yes i think his daughter with her you know bella with her veganism and her you know um interest in the climate and all her kind of moral certainty that teenagers have actually he see 
and the fact that people are dismissing her, he sees that her older sister is going to bully her in the way that he was bullied and yeah. and finally sticks up for her. And that, to me, was an absolutely crucial scene because it wasn't just about his relationship with her, it was about his relationship with himself. It was like his real turning point. Yeah, it's like, no, this is not going to happen. I don't want to see this. Yeah. I don't want history to repeat itself. Exactly. Because exactly. in the scenes that we see, obviously they are from Gus's perspective, but in the scenes we see of his brother and his parents, they are very dismissive of Gus as a teenager and as a young adult. And so the resentment's understandable because it's not only the envy, it's that frustration of, well, they like him better than me. And all of the actions that he remembers justify that feeling. Yes. Well, I think he's a second child. He always felt second best. And then when his brother got killed, his brother sort of became a saint in a way. Um, as far as, you know, nothing bad could be said against him. He was sort of like almost immortalised as this perfect son. And so Gus felt even more inferior. Um, and I, I, that's something that I very much wanted to write about, the, you know, the surviving child, I think, is um, is something that doesn't, that there's not so much attention paid to the, you know, children who've survived uh, you know the ones who survived are kind of like well you're lucky um but and yeah and so they uh that was something that really interested me right from the start when I first was thinking of the character of Gus actually what is uh, do you have any are there in, any inspirations for these characters, people that you know or situations you've read about? I know that some authors say, oh, I read this story or I saw this TV program or I spoke with this person and they'd experienced this, this or this and that gave me this amazing idea that round that became what I created or was this in your head and these characters just sort of gained legs and walked? I think it's always a bit of a combination, isn't it? I mean, certainly if I watch a news story and um, say uh, an, uh, a sister comes on to speak about somebody who, their their sister or brother who's died, I, I sort of often think, oh, I wonder what it's like for them because they're the one who survived, but it's so... You know, that's a very difficult... All the attention is on the one who hasn't. Um, and how, you know, so that sort of always interested me when I see things like that. Um, and, you know, I think you always... Um, well, I always... I, I have to sort of think myself in, into the characters. And so... Um, you know, there are certain aspects of the characters that I really understand. One of them's being a big sister. I mean, I am a big sister. My Same sister here. isn't at all like Hope, but nevertheless, I've always been in a sort of protective role towards her. Uh, I'm also the second child. <laughs> um, um, and, you know, I've got an older brother who um, it was, you know, the much-loved 
son kind of thing. So, so I mean, you know, Tess isn't me, Gus isn't me, but I understand what those dynamics are about, which are their kind of possibly their principal dynamics. Um, and I, th- you know, you can then. I think if you sort of understand a situation, you can extrapolate it, and and you know, I spend when I'm writing, I spend most of my time thinking about the characters before I ever ever start writing, and so I really feel that I understand them before I, you know, open my computer and start writing at all, and that's yeah. what the characters are what drives a plot for me um so yeah do you create an entire backstory their history and everything else before you write so they've almost got a biography before yes and i don't write it down but i do know it yes no i think about it all i mean you know because we first meet tess when she's 18 but i mean i know absolutely what school she went to where it was how she met her best friend who her first boyfriend was what she felt like at school discos none of which we actually see um possibly sort of a few little flashbacks yeah but i sort of know exactly what her relationship was with her mum um, and with her dad, and so yes, and similarly, Gus. I mean, it's a bit more difficult. I mean, I think I'm quite unusual in that I uh, write certainly ever after and miss you are written in the first person, but from you know alternating chapters from the woman Tessa's point of view and then from the man's point yeah. of view. Um, and that was a bit of a risk <laughs> when I started. I don't know why I thought I could do that, but I really, really had to think about. Gus and what it might be like to be, you know, an adolescent boy, essentially. Um, And, um, yeah, so I think the fact that, you know, I mean, I hope it works as, you know, I I think he comes across as a man rather than a woman writing about a man. I You know, I hope that's the case. He comes across as a conflicted man quite a lot, but then Mm. he is conflicted. Yes, but then probably, you know, most men are quite conflicted. Yeah. Everyone's quite conflicted, really. But then ultimately, I'm a woman reading that perspective, so I yeah. can only go from my own experiences, and I'm not a, a man, um, and, and I never have been, so that that sounds really weird. But it's it's true, I'm, I am a female reading it, so the perspective is going to be obviously I'm taking it from my experiences, not from someone who's gone through what he's gone through. But I found it very interesting. And also, of course, the the scenes, the scenery, the background, the location. I mean, Florence is a character in itself. Yeah, I mean, I really, really love Florence. And, you know, the church where they first meet, San Miniato al Monte, I mean, that was if anything inspired this novel, that's what inspired it. Um, uh, it's have you, have you been there? No, I haven't. It's one of those mm. places that's on my bucket list. It's so beautiful. I mean, Florence is absolutely wonderful itself. It's quite extraordinarily beautiful. But 
the centre of the town is really crowded most of the time. But San Miniato al Monte, which you can walk up to, is just that little bit outside. It's got the most fantastic view of Florence. Um, and it's the most beautiful church as well. But, I mean, the view from up there is just absolutely astonishing. Um, so if you're ever there, whenever I see on Instagram somebody who I don't even know, but say if I'm following them, they're going to Florence, I immediately say, you must go to San Miniato Monte because it's not on the normal tourist route. They need um, to pay you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, yeah. The, I was up, I was actually in Florence last week and um, because I was doing some research actually in Perugia, but I was in Florence. I was staying in Florence. But I was doing research for a new novel. Um, but anyway, I went up to San Miniato on Monte and I took Ever After up there with me. And uh, I actually felt really emotional. Um, I left a copy of Ever After um, on a bench outside San Miniato on Monte. And um, before I did that, I went inside and there was a monk, because it's a proper basilica, working church, and I asked him to take a photo of me in the place where Tess met Gus. And my Italian isn't really good enough to explain, but I see I've somehow got it across. And he was... Um, he thought I was giving him the book at first, so I had to take it back from him. <laughs> so oh, I know it's not for you. <laughs> um, but um, I, I left it there with a note in it saying, you know, uh, dear reader, please get in touch if you find this book. It's in the place where, uh, you know, this place inspired it. And I... Um, a Dutch woman has been in touch with me and sent me lots of pictures of her reading it, which was just such a nice thing to have happened. Um, it's almost like it's come full circle. So all of your books, so it sounds like all of your books are based in Italy. Uh, yes, there's an Italian element, yes. So obviously Italy has your heart. It's, I've always loved... Italy from the moment I first went there. I was 10 years old um, and we had been camping in a very cold camper van uh, in mountains because my dad <laughs> loved mountains and it was absolutely freezing and I wasn't enjoying it at all and then we went over the mountains into Italy and th everything seemed to be bathed in sunshine and warmth. So which oh. so where in the mountains were you? The Swiss side? Yeah, Swiss side. So um, we went to Laco Maggiore when I was eleven. Oh right, right. Of course we have I have Swiss family. So we went there the year my dad passed away. My mum decided to take us on holiday abroad for the first time and we spent two weeks camping at the lake and got flooded. <laughs> Oh my goodness. We woke, we woke up one morning. Seriously, we had our we were all sleeping on inflatable beds and woke up one morning, put our hands down and found that the beds were floating. Oh my god. <laughs> well, we in Switzerland had snow. So we woke up in a campsite and there was like 6 inches of snow on the oh, ground. Wow. I mean, when I say cold, it was really cold. Mm. So so after that, Italy just, and I was, you know, I was, I had long blonde hair, 
everyone said, ah, oh, Bella, Bella, you know, which nobody had ever said to me before. And I just thought, I love that ice cream. Love the ice cream. Oh, gelato, I yeah. thought, um, yeah, this is a place. And from then on, it's it's been a, a love affair. I mean, I love doing the Romans at school. And then on the first possible chance I had to go away on my own, I was um, in my gap year, I was an au pair in Rome. Um, so so it's, uh, it's definitely grabbed a hold of your heart and isn't letting go. No, it isn't. I love it there. I find it... Um, well, I love... I love the art, I love the history, I love the people, you know. I just find it really a, a very romantic place, actually. I, yeah, you know, it is. and that yeah. comes across. I mean, your descriptions of Florence and everywhere are so colourful and vibrant that you could almost imagine being there, and it also makes you really want to go. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Well, do go. I hope you, I, if it has the effect of making people want to go, I'm really pleased. As I said, Italy needs to start paying you. <laughs> <laughs> Work for the Italian Tourist Board. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, certainly, I don't think that many people know about Ortigia, which is the place in Syracuse in Sicily. And that really is special. I mean, it's, you know, the, the main square there is really so beautiful. But then if they all knew about it, it wouldn't, it would probably not feel the same. Well, that's true. Yeah. So, yes, but. Uh, I, I think tourists it. come with, it, it comes with the price, popularity. Yes. yes. And I mean, Italy these days, you can't really watch television without seeing programmes about Italy. It's oh, just no. so huge. Yeah. Wandering around in Rome, which is, I mean, even Rome, which is incredibly touristy, there is something you find little piazzas and tiny churches around every corner and down every single alleyway. Yes, yes. Oh, Rome, yes. I mean, I lived in, after Missio was published, I fulfilled a dream of going back there to, to live for a while. And we lived in a, um, we actually lived in a converted pasta factory. Uh, but it was it was just a little bit outside the main area. But you could walk to the Colosseum in about half an hour. Um, but it was just like a total, you know, no ordinary neighbourhood. But it had, you know, part of the Aurelian Wall running outside it. I mean, it's it's so extraordinary, Rome. It really um, it really is because we were staying at a hotel that was quite a bit outside the city. So we had a, a relatively long walk to get to the station and then a good 20-minute journey to get into the city itself. But once you were there, it's so vibrant, even on a quiet day, even when it was absolutely tipping it down with rain, it was still it was still so different to going into... I, I live relatively near Brighton and it was so different to living into going into Brighton or to an English city in general because the history is just in everything. Yes. It is. It's it's extraordinary. And all things like the you know, the fountains, they are fed by water from the aqueducts, the same aqueducts that the Romans built. I mean, it's just extraordinary that so much of that infrastructure is still Roman you know it's just yeah. unbelievable 
the only thing I would recommend is wearing trainers because <laughs> the pavements aren't exactly safe for heels. No, I know you know wearing heels is not a good idea at all in Rome. Then trying to get across the road is taking your life in your own hands. Yeah, you get very brave if you live there. Um, yes. And uh, now, you know, if I go there, say, with my, my son, he's kind of like, what are you doing? <laughs> I must march out in front of traffic. But they do stop if you're brave enough. Yeah, we found the trick when I was over there was to follow somebody pushing a buggy. Oh, right, okay. yes. Always stop for a mother with children. Always. It doesn't matter how fast they're going or where they are. They always stop for a buggy. Yeah, my Italians love children. Yes, so we followed. It was a case of coming out of the Colosseum, follow that buggy, (laughs) (laughs) just to get across the road. But it was, it's a lovely place and it's so busy. But at the same time, you can walk anywhere and find yourself by a stunning sculpture of something. Yes, yeah. Or with some amazing view, or yeah, yeah, no, it is. It's a, it's a very, very beautiful city. But it's also a beautiful country. It doesn't matter every, where you go. Every single place is just extraordinary. Uh, I mean, even Milan, which is, I don't know if you've been to Milan, um, but mm-hmm. I mean, it's much more like a sort of northern European city in the look of it, and it doesn't really have a sort of centro storico like it's sort of you know, like a lot of them do. Yeah. It's not really medieval. But then the cathedral is just staggering. Um, have you been to Milan? I've been to, a few, I've been to a few places in Italy, but most of them were smaller towns and things because right. I was with, um, not so much with family, but with um, the school that I worked in in Austria. We travelled a little bit into Italy and then travelled through Germany to come home. Right. Well, Milan Cathedral, you can go on the roof and it's honestly like going up to heaven. It's the sculpture up there is unbelievable. Um, uh, It's, you know, these amazing kind of pinnacles of carvings. It's just so beautiful. That's the one thing I do love about Italy. Well, Rome is their art. Mm. I mean, we have pieces of it over here. And of course, in France, they have some beautiful examples but in Rome it's everywhere (laughs) yes yes no it really is but that that is something that I got from Ever After was the feeling of agelessness in the city in in Florence and then Nortigia it was so incredibly welcoming but also quite awe-inspiring yes well I'm really pleased <laughs> that you say that. Um, that's certainly, uh, you know, I, I find it, I find, especially actually, um, Ortigia is a sort of transformative place. Um, it's got the most beautiful light. Um, and its patron saint is Santa Lucia, which, um, you know, Lucia means light. Um, and it, it is really, um, you know, a, a most awe-inspiring place so you've heard it here Ortigia is beautiful but don't start making it a tourist destination (laughs) (laughs) because we want people to go but we don't want everybody to go (laughs) 
<laughs> it's probably best to go in the winter, actually, uh, because still not many people go in the winter and the light is still so beautiful then. All I rem- It sounds strange, but all I remember is at school learning about Sicily and the words we learned were, and Italy kicked Sicily. Oh, yes. <laughs> because, of course, it's the boot. But that's all we ever learned really about Sicily. And we obviously we learned about the Romans and things. And I was always fascinated with ancient history far more than anything. Anything beyond the 1600s I wasn't interested in. Hmm. Yes, me very much the same in that way, yes, yeah. It was always because the art, the Renaissance almost, the art, the poetry, the creativity seemed so much more advanced and advancing at that era than any other time, even with technology. Yes, yes. Um, And, And that is something that comes across in the book so much because of where we are. And obviously with Tess writing her book and discovering her creative soul or rediscovering her creative soul, because we have to bring it back to the book. And that is something that I don't think would have happened the same way if she'd not gone back to discover everything in Italy. Yes, yes. And also the fact that she was she found out who she was. Yes. Really? Yes. Was given that opportunity because she was away from everything, because she went on her own. Yes. And a very crucial character is the person that she meets there, who's this sort of rather starchy, um, older... uh, Sandy. American woman, yes, who takes Tess seriously. And I think sometimes when you're on holiday or in a strange place you can have these chance encounters with people that kind of change your life and because they're seeing you as somebody without any baggage you can almost be more yourself with a stranger than you can with your family or friends or lover and I think that's what happens to Tess she sort of discovers who she is she has the freedom and the time and I think she needed that away from everything that had been going on in England because she had really been dumped on quite a lot with everything that was going on with Gus, everything that was going on with her family and going to Ortigia and almost, I love the way that she gets, she doesn't even realise what's happening until it's like, oh, so you you want to live here. (laughs) (laughs) Patrizia was fantastic. Yes, she says in a sort of polite, being friendly, oh, I never want to leave. And, and they take her at face value yes. and say, oh, well, you can stay here. Yes, so here's, here's an apartment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. That, well, that wasn't startling. I wasn't expecting that. But she takes it in her stride. And that is, also, I think that is a, a show of where she's come from in comparison with where she was at the beginning of the book. She takes everything in her stride and is very strong about it. And that is another thing that this book really brings home is that the more hardships you have, the more more growth you have, the stronger you become. And Tess is far stronger at the end of the book than she is when she first meets Gus at the beginning. Yes, I think I, 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 I yes, 
thank you. I mean, I, I hope that that's what I wanted for it to be. Yes, I'm very pleased that you found that. And, of course, the next book's going to be in Italy too. <laughs> it is, yes, Umbria next time. Very nice. Hmm. I look forward to reading about it or hearing about it. So <laughs> we've been talking for a very long time and I love, I really do love this book. I actually think I should go back and read Miss You because I haven't read it previously. So I think it'll be interesting to see the sort of the serendipitous encounters that they have along the way, all the little things, because you do get hints of that throughout Ever After because she's sort of, it's almost as though it triggers something in her memory when yes. they meet up again. And it would be nice to read about where it started. So where can people, obviously they can buy the book on Amazon and Waterstones and internationally. Has it got a different title as only you had or is it Ever After Everywhere? Uh, it's... Uh, well, it hasn't yet been published in foreign territories, oh, so wow. I don't actually even know what they're calling it. Um, so um, I have, because in most foreign territories, it was called, uh, Miss You was called Miss You, as you say, but I'm not sure about what's going to happen with Ever After. That's interesting. Mm. So where can people find you on socials, website? Um, well, I mainly use Instagram. And it's at Kate Eberlin. Um, and I am also on Twitter, but I don't really use Twitter that much. So I've noted your Instagram is full of beautiful photos of Italy at the moment. <laughs> it is at the moment because I've just been there. Yeah. And uh, yes, that story about me going up there is, is on a reel. So, yeah. yeah. It's, and they're lovely photos. I can say I've, I've I spent a lot of time looking at them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I can't go on holiday this year. My passport expired in April. So... Oh dear! <laughs> so I'm just taking I'm just taking experience from everybody else's photos of I've just been to this place and I've just been to this place and the people that are posting the beautiful scenic photos and everything that atmospheric images. I'm just going all oh, right. I've experienced my holiday. <laughs> That's a good idea for next time I go abroad. <laughs> Which is fantastic. I love looking at other people's holiday photos, especially when they're taking beautiful images of um, views. I, I really do enjoy looking at a scene, um, a scenes of cities and countryside and skies and, sea, and the sea. Though I could just walk down the road and look at the sea because I live five minutes from it. Oh, really? <laughs> Five minutes south, and I'm on the I'm on the coast. So yes, oh, I could wow. just I could just walk down the down the road, but it's not quite the same as looking at the Amalfi Coast or somewhere else equally as stunning. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it's true. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's nothing nowhere like... quite like say Venice, is there? I, no. there's, I'm going to post um, a picture. Somebody took a picture of my book on the Lido in Venice so that's what I'm going to be posting next oh, wonderful <laughs> yeah not jealous of them being in the in Venice at all. <laughs> at all not at all I just have to watch a film that's in Venice or re-watch A Room with a View which was the first book that made me fall in love with Italy 
Yes, well, me too. I mean, uh, and actually that film is really wonderful, isn't it? It is. I did Mm. my GCSE essay. We had to do a a single essay, really long one. I did my GCSE essay about A Room with a View and Lady Chatley's Lover. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And have you watched in... in more contemporary have you watched the do you have you read Elena Ferranti no oh well Naples she is just the most amazing writer you love her and uh, there's also um three of the there are four books and three of them have been made into Italian television series but they are the most faithful to books that I've ever seen they're so good I'll have to keep my eye out for those then Thank you ever so much for coming on and talking about Ever After and Italy in general, because Italy is a beautiful place that I would recommend people visit at least once in their lives, if not multiple times. I need to go again. (laughs) Yes, everyone needs to go again. (laughs) I agree. I I think it's a place that everybody needs to visit at some point. But thank you ever so much for coming on and talking about everything to do with the books and your travels. And look forward to hearing about the next book. But Ever After is available now. You can order it pretty much everywhere and it's well worth a read. 100% would recommend it. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed talking to you, Ray. And, I've enjoyed talking uh, to you. hope to talk to you again soon. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you. Okay, bye. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening and thank you again to my guest, the author Kate Abelin. Her latest book, Ever After, is out now, published by Orion Books. Whether you're travelling abroad or staying home this year, hey, a staycation is great if the weather cooperates, not that it actually is right now in the UK. Um, This is the perfect book to keep you company. Next week, I'll be back with some YA mythology that you may have seen on my Instagram and TikTok feeds because the book is something to behold. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or any of the other podcatchers where you listen. You can follow me on Instagram and threads as beingbookishpod on TikTok as Being Bookish Reviews and on X. Oh, I really do not like that change as Being Underscore Bookish. Or you can check out my website for the podcast back catalogue and full written book reviews at beingbookish.co.uk. Well, I've got a lot to get ready for next week and another new book on the TBR is calling to me. So until next time, this is me saying farewell. Farewell.